Our Father, we're thankful that as Creator, You have left Your signature ahead of us, behind us, and all around us in nature. And we pray that Your Holy Spirit, who instantly created the universe, who can be the one tonight who is our teacher, we thank You that He who has inspired Scripture and given us a narration of whence we have come and where we are going will be the one who guides us in the present. We ask this through our Savior's name, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, since it's been a while, we want to just go back and orient. Here we are. We're looking at the first event. The um, thing that's being passed out is chapter 4, so we're actually moving, are going to move to the second event, and now we'll speed up because we had to do so much preliminary work in dealing with that first event of Genesis 1 and 2, uh, creation. And we dealt with the doctrine of God, who God is, we've examined His characteristics, His attributes, we've talked about how you talk about His attributes, that these are not abstract qualities, these are not qualities that anybody has ever totally comprehended or ever will totally comprehend, that God is incomprehensible inherently because of the creator-creature distinction. We said that whatever we say in any area, we are always face-to-face uh, with that same uh, creator-creature distinction. We have said that God has certain attributes that are similar to characteristics that we are familiar with. And so, we have talked about the fact that um, our God is omnipotent. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. That that quality of absolute and total power is inherent to Him as the Creator. We have said that He is omnipresent. He is wholly present everywhere, not just partially here or partially there, but wholly present everywhere. We have said that He is immutable, that He never changes. And that is the root and the source of knowledge, the fact that you have an unchanging God. Not man, but God. And then we said that God always existed, and so we have the attribute of eternality, and what we experience as time is a finite version of that. We said that God is sovereign, that He controls all things, and that our human choice and our human uh, response is sort of a finite analog to that. We have said that God loves. We have said that God is holy. And we have said that God is omniscient. And those attributes are basic qualities that undergird the entire creation. The qualities we speak of here, we've called incommunicable after the theological traditions, but really all we're saying is that the attributes there on the left tend to be those attributes less personal than the attributes on the right. And so we always speak of these as in a somewhat different light, but same God, same, same sharing of attributes. We said that the universe is a creation and shares finite versions of these, and in particular, the universe, we've said, is divided into man and nature. So we've looked at two distinctions. We've looked at the distinction of the greater creature, and we've looked at the distinction of man and nature. And we've said that always, uh, wherever you go, whatever version you happen to pick up, you will find that those distinctions are, uh, are minimized in pagan thought. And so we go back to this thing we've gone back to again and again, that on the left side here, you have the ex nihilo creator, and that supports the created creature distinction. On the other side, you have the continuity of being, or the chain of being, as it's called, and that characterizes always, will characterize pagan thought. And we'll see some practical illustrations of that tonight. But wherever you have a non-biblical approach, men and women will smear these distinctions. It always follows. 
and it is following in our generation, as in Plato's generation, as in the Baalist generation, all the way back uh, in the, into ancient times. So that's what we want to look at, and tonight we're going to just mention in, in, in review here at the beginning a few of the things we talked about we talked about man. And we want to um, recall some of those things. Some of you uh, couldn't make it because of the snow and so forth. Um, so uh, let me just say some of the things that we did, did share, with, share about the nature of man. We said that man has analogs to God's creation, God's characteristics, and we have said that man is both material and immaterial. So man is a hybrid being. Man has a spirit. Angels have spirits. Angels do not have bodies. Men do have bodies. So therefore, we are not like angels. We have some. We are sort of a hybrid, and it's precisely our hybrid composition and our design that permits us to be redeemed. For it appears in Scripture that angels never got a second choice. Angels choose to rebel, and forever they were damned. And it's significant that when Jesus speaks of the lake of fire, he never speaks of the lake of fire as designed for men. He says, depart, you, you wicked, into the lake of fire created for the angels. So the angels were the first ones who faced utter, utter and total damnation. And they had to, as individuals, face this damnation with apparently no hope of salvation. So we, the hybrid beings, we fall too, like the angels fell. And in Adam we fell. But the way we fell, the way we were designed such that when we did fall in Adam, we fell as mortal beings in mortal bodies, which in some peculiar way allows us not to be condemned immediately, but rather have a day, experience a day of grace in which we have an opportunity to trust in the gracious invitation of God through Jesus Christ to come back to Him. And this is terminated. Man's chance is terminated once he receives the resurrection body. For when the resurrection body uh, is, when the, when the body is, is uh, resurrected, Jesus says there'll be the resurrection unto life and the resurrection unto damnation. And at that point, we are indestructible, and, the, uh, and it's sobering, but uh, all choices have been fixed at that time. Uh, this frail body we live in is also a mirror of the changeability of our, our opportunity in history, the day of grace, when men and women can turn from God to, to him. So this is all tied into salvation and everything else, and I'm trying in this series to provoke your thinking to realize that the scriptures are presenting a very rational plan. It's a very well-designed thing. And you don't want to learn the bad habit of, of picking up a piece of biblical truth over here and not attaching it to the other pieces of biblical truth all throughout the scriptures. It all hangs together. And the church always gets in trouble when we neglect that point. Uh, particularly, we say uh, that these characteristics are important in our time because it's fashionable in our day due to various things that happened in, in Western Europe, particularly in the last two, three hundred years, it's fashionable in our time to consider religion subjective and personal. And everything else like science and history and so on is objective and true for everyone. But religion is that one thing in most people's mind that's just totally subjective. In fact, the National Science Foundation and the NEA has argued that for this very reason, there is no reason for students in public schools to feel threatened by evolution because evolution speaks to the area of science and religion speaks to the area of the eternity and the subjective things. This is a fake definition of religion, of course. But the point is, that's being said. And the answer to that is always the same, that biblical Christianity rests on historical revelation of God. That's why we say we can't tolerate errors in Genesis 1. We can't tolerate an error in Genesis 2 any more than we can tolerate an error in the report of Jesus' resurrection. For Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, the whole thing's a big fake. 
So our religion, in contrast to the usual cultural definition, our religious faith is anchored to the historical and the scientific facts. And this is why we fundamentalists are always so provocative. This is why we are misunderstood. This is why we are really thorns in the side of people who just want to get on with life relegating religion to the subjective. And why can't you people just let science have its way? Why can't you just let history have its way and stop your constant harping and interference into this process of study? The answer is we cannot if we are to remain in authority to the religion of this book. This, this book is not our opinion. It is inherent in the very structure of this book. So when we deal with these differences, man and nature, those are statements. Those are things that come out of the text of Genesis 1 and 2. And we can't release them. Sorry, but we didn't write the text. All we're doing is reading and applying the text. So we added uh, that man, as a result of this, is a social being, and we said that there are three divine institutions, responsible labor, marriage, and family, and that these are institutions of God that he has created in history, in contrast to the claim that is also being made in our time that these are mere conventions. These are arbitrary conventions to be changed at the whim of society. So whereas we think in terms of a man-woman in a marriage, there's no reason you couldn't think of a man-man in a marriage or a woman-woman in a marriage because these are arbitrary conventions not rooted at all into the very structure of the universe. We, we argue the other way around, that these are all institutions that are instituted by God. That's why the term institution is there, that he instituted it, not just because of structural reasons. He instituted them because in the design of all these institutions, the, the story of salvation is revealed. This is why marriage is used in the New Testament as a picture of Christ and his church. This is why God is revealed as a father. It's wholly meaningless for God to reveal himself as a father if there's no such thing as fathers around. There's no such thing as families around. The whole idea of God calling himself father is, is bizarre. It's meaningless. So these are not arbitrary conventions. They're divine and absolute and hold true of any culture, any race, any era of history, any language-speaking group. They are universals, they are institutions, and they are given by God for various reasons. All right, so then we came, uh, last time, we started working with nature, the other half of this universe. And in looking at nature, on page 42, we said that we encounter the design of nature. And immediately, of course, we have people who say, well, I don't see any design in nature. Well, that's more of a commentary on you than it is on nature. Because we gave the illustration uh, in the notes and also last time that if you were seeing patterns, if you could see a pattern, and we use the illustration of the Morse code, dot, a lot of dots and dashes, and um, if you could see a pattern, um, that might be interesting to you, but it wouldn't communicate content to you unless you shared the l rules of grammar and the vocabulary with the sender of that pattern. Once you share the, the vocabulary categories and the grammatical rules with the sender, now that is more than a pattern. That now takes on a message. And so we say that the pattern in God's creation makes sense and carries meaning to you only if you are in speaking terms of the creator who designed it. So if somebody looks at a pattern and can't see meaning to it, what that tells you is they're not in speaking terms with the one who sent it. Any more than somebody looks at the Morse code and says, I don't see anything, it doesn't mean anything to me. Well, that's because you don't know the language. So, and it gets back to what we started this whole thing with, presuppositions. It goes back to your basic belief system. And it affects every area we deal with that keeps coming up here. And I wanted you to see it again. Because we can sit here and argue about patterns until we're blue in the face and, and these people just sit and accept it and say, well, but that doesn't show a designer. It just accidentally happened. I mean, you know, you can get dots and dashes out of a pile of dots and dashes. Just an accidental, random thing that happened. And that's exactly what people are saying about what we would call patterns in nature.
But the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Well, what is that saying? It's saying it's his handiwork. It's not a chance collation of debris. It's saying something. So nature carries a message. But we said that God reveals himself through nature differently than with man. When God reveals himself through nature, he reveals himself like this. In the Morse code, the, the dashes and the dots aren't doing the speaking. They're merely carrying a message. And so it is with nature. General revelation is not speaking to us. Nature doesn't come up in an audible voice. All nature's doing is carrying patterns that we understand as showing something of our God. And this is the difference between general revelation of nature and revelation where God has spoken to man, which is preserved in the Bible. The theological titles for this, if you do reading, is the first one is called general revelation. General revelation refers to nature and God speaking through nature. Special revelation refers to God speaking language that can be heard in human vernacular and so on to us as people, and that's God's word. So those are the two terms, general and special revelation. Well, now tonight, we want to come down to some of the limitations on man. And we started on page 44, uh, because what we're going to do now is we're going to say, look, let's examine man over against nature. And what we say tonight may at first sound, again, very theoretical. But I've, I've, I've tried to abstract various principles so that you can apply them across the board practically every area. Let's look at this difference better. Here's man, and man is the knower. He is the Lord of nature. God has given man to be the subduer of nature. And the first act of subduing is to know it. What did Adam do in the garden first? He named animals. He looked around and he named things. And it was more than pin a tail on the donkey type thing. It was not arbitrary titles he was giving those animals. Why do we know that? What does the text say in Genesis 2 that tells you that Adam was not randomly naming the animals? He wasn't cataloging them. He was doing something more than merely cataloging animals that traipsed by. Why do we know that? What is the tip off in the text of Genesis 2 that lets us know that it wasn't an arbitrary cataloging going on? Why, what was his objective in naming those animals? To see if any of them had personality on a plane equal to himself. And Adam's first experiment proved the man-nature distinction because he did not find any creature with whom he could carry on a conversation with and have a personal relationship with. He had the dogs, the cats, the birds, and the bees. None of them provided him with a personal relationship. So the man-nature distinction is right inherent from day six. And when, God, when Adam did that, he was naming them with insight into their being. So he began at that very point, if you can dramatize this and picture in your, the mind's eye of your imagination, this first human man sitting there all alone in the garden with these bemas and little big things coming by, and he's looking at them. And with a mind untainted by sin, a mind and a body not ruined by sin, not subject to aging, or, or, or death, rather, the death process, obviously subject to maturity, but not the death process, in this magnificent body with a magnificent mind, he was grasping the nature of it all around. And God was not telling him what to name them, because what does the text say? God stood back and he let to see what Adam would name them. And there's the very room for creativity. Everybody says, well, gee, if God is sovereign, there's no room for creativity. Well, it was there. God was not telling Adam how to name the animals. He just said, I have named light, I have named water, I have named earth, Adam. I've, I've named your basic environment. I started your language off. Now you finish it. Go ahead. See, what, what's this thing called? And so he invited Adam to creatively investigate. Well, this is the exercise of dominion. But we want to look that we are creatures in this dominion process. So now, beginning on page 44, I'm going to go through key areas where we are limited. 
Now, right here, we're back to a spiritual issue because I'm going to cover, you can, see, you can tell when I get through here, I've covered every area of knowledge and human life. And at every point, we're back to the same controversy we were from the beginning. Are we or are we not going to submit to our role as creatures under the Creator? Or are we going to be autonomous beings where we decide our destiny, we decide truth, and we decide what is right and what is wrong? So, here goes the limitations. The first limitation, page 44, is man's limited power over nature. We explained some of that last time. and We went on to show, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15, this is a critical commentary on Genesis, so let's you could turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Until you read Genesis in the light of how the New Testament authors looked at it, you sometimes don't get a respect for how literal they were. Notice in verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's talking about the resurrection. He says, so is the resurrection of the dead. But notice what he says. It, the body, is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is so often, this text, by the way, is used in funerals. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And so forth. And he cites verse 45. And so it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. And he's citing Genesis 2. So Paul is taking it very literally and very straightforwardly. And what he's arguing here is that Adam was made in a body that could self-destruct. When Adam sinned, he began immediately to die. But in that garden, do you remember what there was that he had to be kept away from? There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was the other one? It was the tree of life. And you read that strange passage, if you'll hold a place in 1 Corinthians, because we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 15, and just read those last few verses at the end of the fall. Uh, we're going to get into that later when we get into the, fall, uh, the event of the fall, but tonight I just want to take you ahead just a pet chapter. In Genesis 3, verse 22, 23, and 24. In that garden, there was something else. And... Look at how physical this is. Let's not spiritualize everything. This is a physical tree. Adam is physically dying. And God says in verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now lest he stretch forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, if you have a modern translation, you'll notice that it has a line after the word forever. Some of your translations have that do you know why that's there? The translators are trying to communicate that in the Hebrew that sentence never ends. Now, what do you do in your average everyday conversation when you start to talk and you stop and you don't finish something? Either you've lost the thought or what are some other reasons why you might stop in a sentence? What you're talking about might either be inappropriate and you suddenly realize that or what you're talking about is horrible. And that's what this is. This is a suspension of the grammar of the sentence. And it's one of those rare occurrences in the Word of God where God begins to speak and He stops Himself. And He never finishes that sentence. Because whatever it is, He said, if, lest, his purpose, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And that was such a horrible thing for God to contemplate, that man would be fallen and live forever unredeemable. And so therefore, to keep man redeemable, verse 24, he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Man was expelled. And from that point until the flood of Noah, perhaps for centuries, men could come up to that garden where the fall occurred and they would be repelled. It was some power. 
were whatever this angel with a sword that turns in every direction, there was some deflecting power that God kept there, like a high voltage fence. No man will be permitted in the Garden of Eden, lest he eat of the tree of life. Because the tree of life at that point, apart from spiritual salvation, would have merely been what Ponte Leon sought in Florida. A natural life that would go on forever, a fountain of youth. And that would have been horrible, because it would have not been salvation. It would have been living hell on earth forever and ever and ever, and not being able to destroy. In a resurrection body, you can't commit suicide. And that, that's the way you, you look at this thing. You're locked in the body. And wherever the destiny of the body is, you are. And you're not going to get out of it. And I'm not going to get out of it. Once in the resurrection body, be it the resurrection to damnation or the resurrection of life, it's a ceiling. All choices are off then. The day of grace has ended. So, at this point, man is expelled. And it shows the limitations of our present body. Going back to 1 Corinthians 15, that's why it says it was sown in a natural body. It's sown in a mortal body. So we have this term, man has limited power in nature because he is mortal. That is, he dies. He is subject to death. Custance has an interesting thought here that Jesus, because he was virgin born, probably did not share that same kind of mortalized body of Adam. So while Jesus grew up as a child, he matured and he grew, he grew that Jesus did not share the death sentence in Adam. For had he done so, then his death could not have been substitutionary. It would only have been premature. Jesus died earlier than someone else, but he did not die in place of someone else. So here Adam is, and he and us have these bodies that allow our spirits to manipulate matter they allow us to live for a certain time period, but they're subject to death. What the death process is, science hasn't discovered this. Ever think about the fact that you can take tissue out of the human body, feed it, and it keeps on multiplying? The t an amoeba doesn't experience death. It just keeps on dividing, unless it's accidentally squished or something. It just keeps on dividing, keeps on dividing, keeps on dividing, keeps on dividing. It never dies. It just goes on. But for some reason, these cells in our bodies have a limiting factor in them. From the day we are born, we begin to die. And what is it that's causing death in our bodies? We don't know what it is. But something is at work right now in all of us to kill us. It is part of the capital punishment put upon all of us by God. So that's a limitation. We have a limited power over nature. Now on the bottom of page 45, we come to another limitation, and this is the modern environmental movement. And I want to take you to some passages in Deuteronomy. Well, let's first turn to Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. Because even in the post-fall era, God is concerned with the environment. Not worshipping the environment. But I just I want to expose you to some of the... We won't go into detail. Uh, this is just a flash in the pan here to show you that there is concern for the environment deep inside the structure of Scripture. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, it's that Sabbath commandment. It says, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter. And we often remember that. But look at the last of the sentence. Finish reading that sentence. Who else is given the Sabbath rest? The animals that did the work. They were to be rested, just like people were to be rested. There's respect for them. If you want to say there's animal rights, there's where the animal right comes in. They are to be treated with respect and rest. Another little passage um, in Exodus 23.10 talking about gardens and soil. In Exodus 23.10, And you shall sow your land for six years and gather its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. And God was a was stickler on that because when Israel didn't do it, he forced them into rest. He sent them into exile to pay back the seven years that they hadn't rested the land. And in the last century, I'm told, in the last part of the 19th century, the part of the 20th century, Dutch farmers, 
followed this practice. And I guess when some of them immigrated to Michigan and so on, some of the places where the Dutch are very strong, they carried with them this tradition. And a farmer would plant only six-sevenths of his acreage and reserve one-seventh to lie fallow. And then the next year, he'd move over the one-seventh of this acreage and plant this. So the soil at any given point in his field would be six to one production to one part rest. And interestingly, in ecology point of view, that kind of helps the soil restore itself. So that it, now in biology, is a little bit more understanding of the fact that, gee, that does help. Um, so there are these little fine details, and I give you some more references in Deuteronomy in the notes. But I'm just pointing out here that God's, God's the, the one to make the rule. Because nature, what does the Psalms tell us? The earth is whose? It's the Lord's. And what? And the fullness thereof. Who then is the absolute owner of the environment? God is the absolute owner of the environment. What I find so intriguing today is that some of the most outspoken environmentalists are the most anti-Christian people you've ever run across. And it's so striking to me because I, I, I kind of am amazed that they can't ever, ever raise the question in their own minds, why, if the Bible is not true, and if Christianity is false, why do I care about the environment? Why do you treat it so? Where do rights come from? There's no rights there. Molecules don't have rights. You're borrowing all this language that you've gotten from Christian tradition, and you're turning it around using it, but you've left all the content behind. So all you're talking, you're just talking God talk. That's all you're doing. Just moral talk, just ethical talk. It doesn't have any substance to it. Because the, the universe isn't owned by anybody. Now what they'll tell you is, well, uh, it's survival of the fittest and, and we have to make sure at least we survive. That we, the fittest, you know, we want to we be the fittest. We don't want to go out of the way of the dinosaur. So we want to survive. Well, at the risk of being a little... Uh, uh, much of a pest, let me just ask the question, why is it good that we survive? Is that a good? Well, it's, I want to survive. I know, I didn't ask whether you want to survive. I asked whether it's good and right or maybe that you even ought to survive. Who says you ought to survive? Where do we get that from? See, we're borrowing all these oughts. Remember what I said at the beginning? Whenever people say ought, all, never, or they imply those things. Listen carefully, because you're listening to presuppositions at work. Okay, so men have, and I point out on page 46 something else, because the, the environmentalists have, have come on, there's a guy by the name of White that wrote back in the 70s, and he said this. He said that we Christians are the cause of the environmental mess. Now you say, what? Here's his logic. White read the Bible in Genesis 1 where it says we have dominion over the earth. Because on his presuppositions there was no God to control the dominion, he read Genesis 1 to mean this. He says what we say is that we can go ahead and rule the universe the way we want to. But now is that the way you read Genesis 1? That's not what Genesis 1 is reading. Genesis 1 is in a theological context of a creator whose is the universe. So, in that theological context, you, there's, no, there's no arrogance. But White, because he was a non-Christian, walks into Genesis 1 text, misunderstands fundamentally the whole idea of Genesis 1, and then writes this book that goes all over the world saying Christianity, everywhere it's gone, has ruined the environment. And, of course, he cites 19th century industry and so forth. Well, that's not necessarily a reflection of Christian ethics. But I just warn you about this in case you get into the environmental issue. I'm sure you do in classrooms and stuff. Keep this in mind. That's where it comes from. And that's why I put that paragraph in the notes for reference later on for you. All right, elsewhere on page 46, man's limited knowledge of nature. So we want to spend the rest of our time tonight on two parts. If you look on page 46, there's reason, and on page 47, there's experience. Turn to Job 28, verse 14. This is, a, again, a wisdom book, and it has a wonderful verse in there that summarizes everything I'm going to say. Job 28, verse 14. 
Now, here's the deal. If there is no God, then this thing up here in man's head is the only place that knowledge can be located. Got it? If there is no bigger mind than, God, than man's, that's all we got for knowledge, what we call that brain. And there's no, there's no knowledge outside of that. Well, what we call knowledge is just thought processes going inside in the brain, if there is no God. And so man has this thing going, and he keeps looking at nature, trying to look for truth down here, trying to see what, what is truth, because he, he's made in God's image, but he doesn't want to admit in his heart that God is there, and I should be looking up. So he looks down, seeking from nature to find truth. And so Job says, uh, the book of Job here, uh, in verse 28, 14, the deep says, or let's go back to verse 12 of, of this passage, but where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. Look at that statement. It is not found in the land of the living. Now, what does that do to the humanist premise? If God is not there, and if the only knowledge we have is our knowledge, what this verse is saying is, you can go and live to be a thousand years, and you never get it together. It is not in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It can't be found. The secret to life, happiness, meaning, is not to be found in nature. Nature, any more than we, the dash and the dots. The dashes and the dots don't give you that. It's speaking with the author of the dashes and the dots that make it meaningful. Nature conveys God's knowledge, not its own knowledge. Now, let's see how that's so. I'm giving an illustration, the bottom of page 46 and the top of page 47. <coughs> Let me explain that, that particular illustration. <coughs> Most of us know of the 19th century as the century when unbelief began with a virulence in, in Western civilization. It really was a rotten century. And a lot of stuff and junk that comes out of the 18th and 19th centuries, we're, st we're living with the results of it today. Now, we always think of terms of evolution and some of those things that came out of the 19th century. But one of the things that came out of the 19th century that people forget about and were not well trained. I mean, this is not covered in most high school courses in history. And very few college courses mention this. But there were actually two stunning things that happened in the 19th century. One was Darwin. That was one. But the other one that had an insidious and widespread effect is hardly ever commented on. And that is the discovery that Euclid's geometry failed. And here's why. Let's go back to our high school days and talk about a line and a point, not on the line. A line and the point being in one defining a plane. Now, there's a there, Euclid and the Greeks who represent probably the finest development of pagan thought ever in the history of man. They believe that you could start with a set of fundamental axioms and logically reason yourself to truth. And they believed that these fundamental axioms intuitively were obvious, intuitively obvious and reflected the nature of the real world. So once you grabbed hold of these axioms, you had a powerful logical crank and you could crank out theorem after theorem after theorem and prove very fundamental truths. And then you could use those truths to design pyramids. You could use those truths to design levers, Archimedes. You could design those, uh, systems of navigation. You could describe nature. And what they thought had happened up until the 19th century was, oh, isn't man a wonderful thinking being that he has this awesome power to intuit axioms and reason his way to truth about the world outside of his head. Powerful tool. Powerful tool. And there were a lot of successes. And out of that geometry, 
There were a number of axioms, ten to be exact, and there was one axiom that said this. If I have a straight line, and I have a point out that line, I can draw one and only one parallel line. Now, those of you who are really into geometry understand that this is where we get triangles out of this thing. So trigonometry falls rapidly out of this axiom. And why well, I'm mentioning this because I want you to see what's, what's going to happen here in a minute. So everybody believed these axioms. They were all intuitively obvious. Man had his reason and everything yielded before this mighty power of reason. The problem came up when mathematicians began to look at this, this particular axiom and they said, uh-oh, we smell a rat in this particular axiom. This axiom is different than the other nine. Because all the other nine are intuitively obvious. It's what a straight line is, period, you know, that kind of stuff. Circles. Axioms are obvious, except this one. Because some of the mathematicians began to ask the question, look at that, what that axiom is saying. Let's look carefully at this. Let's go back to this little point. How do we know that this dashed line, if extended to infinity, never touches this one? Anybody have an intuitive idea of what it does in eternity or infinity to the left or to the right? Is that an area that's subject to intuition? Obviously not. So it bothered mathematicians that that axiom was saying something that it was not being intuitive. It was a guess about what happens in the far left and the far right. But it was surely a guess and it was not intuitively obvious that this is a truth because it was an unconfirmed truth. And so to make a long story short, here's what happened. There were two schools of mathematicians in the 19th century. One of them said, you're all wrong. There are no lines running through that point. We can't be sure of anything. So what they did is they designed a different axiom, fit it with the previous nine, and developed a geometry. They said, let's see what happens. Let's develop a new geometry to replace Euclid's using nine of his ten axioms and modifying this one to say there are no such things as parallel lines. Then there was another school of mathematicians that said, no, actually there are an infinite number of lines going through that point that never touch the line. And lest you think this is crazy, I remind you that if you take a sphere and you put a, a great circle on the sphere, that you can draw all kinds of lines on that thing, multiple lines to points, and they do not intersect. The surface of the sphere is, is not a parallel flat plane. So spherical geometry does not share that particular axiom, because that axiom works in only two dimensions, not three. So the point was that these alternate geometries came up, and they were all consistent. You could prove theorems, you could prove corollaries, you could prove everything else. And they said, uh-oh. And by the time it came to about 1900, 1910, they began to say, which geometry is the real one? Will the real geometry please stand up? Now you see the problem. If reason is such a powerful tool, how come it invented three different contradictory geometries, all internally consistent? And this was a shock, and that's led to the statement that I have on page 47 that... Uh, the appearance of non-Euclidean geometries led scientists to question whether man could ever hope to find a true scientific theory. Even more devastating to philosophy was the realization that man can no longer be sure of his ability to acquire truth. This was a shattering thing and had profound repercussions, but you never read about it in the average class. This is as important as evolution was, and it's never mentioned. Okay, now what that says is that it's a, it's a discovery of the limitations of man's reason. Now notice what I say under that quote. Such despair, please note, is a paganistic overreaction to the limitations on reason. Paganism insists on an all-or-nothing agenda. If the carnal mind can't have godlike omniscience, it denies knowledge can exist at all. By way of contrast, the Bible-believing Christian rests in God's omniscience as perfectly rational, not as finite version. So, he does not plunge into this sort of despair. Now, that's all theoretical. Let's take it down to practical, everyday life. You all know intuitively what we're talking about here. How many times have you had a struggle in your life? You've prayed about it. You know there's a reason, particularly in a suffering situation. 
You, you believe in your heart God has a purpose in this, but you can't get at the purpose. Haven't we all had that experience? Now, do we walk away from that kind of an experience saying, well, there's no purpose in it? Of course not. Not if we trust the Lord. But examine your heart in this situation. When you face that kind of situation, what are you doing when you're saying, I don't know what his purpose is, but I trust anyway? Are you trusting in a vacuum? Or what, what, is the, what are you standing on when you're saying, I don't know the purpose in this thing, but I trust him? You're trusting his revelation of his character. I mean, if, if, if Christ didn't die on the cross for you, or for me, we wouldn't have a strong revelation of his love for us. It's only because of those other things where he has demonstrated his character to become trustworthy for us, that we can stand and say, I stand upon what I know of my God's character, even though I don't know what he's up to here. I trust him anyway. Now, that gets at, that's the practical side of this business. And if you want to translate it in everyday living, what the pagan wants to do is this. Until I find out the plan, I don't trust anybody. That's the rationalist. I demand to know. And that's what man has been doing ever since the Greeks. And then when he gets to the point where he gets smashed in the face and realizes no matter how big his computer is, he can't know, then he goes into an absolute and stunning depression. Irrationalism in philosophy in the 20th century is just an intellectual's version of depression. That's all it is. It's an intellectualized form of depression. Because I can't have it all, then it doesn't exist. But we Christians don't buy either line. We never said man had it all. We said man was finite. Remember, that's why I said the creator-creature distinction? Omniscience is not the same as human knowledge. So, when we're faced with this non-Euclidean mess, and we really realize, gee, our minds can conjure up all kinds of logical stuff, and yet none of it fits... I say to myself, but God made me and God made you to be namers of things on this earth, to see subduers on the earth, so our minds are sufficient for that task. We have been created and endowed with enough reason to do the job, but we have not been endowed with enough reason to become omniscient. And what the world wants is either omniscience or zero knowledge. But they will not tolerate a dependency, a humble intellectual dependency upon his omniscience. That is foreboding under the principle of autonomy. All right, let's go into a little easier to grasp one. Um, and by the way, let me, let me uh, because we're going to run over our time. But anyway, let's go to a promise in the New Testament. Let me show you how this works out. Philippians 4. What we were just saying about... Here's one of these problems that we looked at in this light. So we don't go out of here just thinking this is geometry. Uh, Philippians 4, 6 and 7. A neat verse and promise on anxiety. Look what it says. Now, as I read verses 6 and 7, you follow along in the words. See if you can spot something in these two verses that we've just discussed. See if you can spot the idea. Let's go slow. Verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There it is. Look at that in the last verse 7. Look at that little phrase. Which surpasses all comprehension. That is the peace of God. And see, it short-circuits this, this passionate demand to know, why did you let this happen, God? He often doesn't tell us. And if you remember the book of Job, he never told Job why he suffered. Never told him. But was Job satisfied in the end? Remember that reaction of Job after God presented himself? He said, that in effect what Job said, hmm, stupid question. Why did he get to that point? Because he saw God. And then his question became stupid. Whatever it is in seeing God. Because he sees the God who is there, who is mighty, who is loving, 
and who is gracious, and you say, he had that kind of a God has a reason, and I'll trust him for it. So, these are the practical sides of the limitations of reason. Let's come quickly to, to page 47 and the diagram. This is a fundamental diagram that I think totally destroys the pagan claim. Look carefully at the diagram and I'll, com I'll give a commentary on there in the remaining time we have. That diagram pictures uh, space and time. And it's a plot of human knowledge. And you'll notice that there are areas which we will call direct experience. Now, if you look at the map, that's the one with the vertical lines. Direct observation. You see, looking, comparing uh, down the bottom to one second's logarithmic scale for you engineers. One second up to the historical period. That's the only zone where we have direct observation. Anybody want to argue with that? Okay. Has to be locked inside that those boundary, correct? You can't get direct observations any other way. All right. Let's look at the other way. Direct observations go from uh, to the left out there, a little bit below one centimeter, to where you can see with your eye, up to say the scale of mountains. Okay. That's direct observation. Now you extend the observation upward by the telescopes. You extend the uh, observations uh, left with ultra speed film because you can see that you can spot things like at Aberdeen Proving Ground we take high-speed photography of bullets going through armor and you can see the bullet just go like this and it's amazing to see what happens in milliseconds and that's stopping motion so we can observe it with a tool you can go down with a microscope but observe the diagram there's no way to go right but just notice that there's not a scientific tool known that goes to the right side of that diagram and that's the problem that we have whenever we deal with natural history. We can extend by instrumentation on only three sides of our knowledge, but not the fourth. The only way we can extend out to the right is by observations of people who must have lived when we didn't live. But that ends the observations. So man is then limited in his experience to that box. He will always be limited to that box. So, we just talked about the limitations on reason. Here's the limitation on experience. What are the two things that pagans use to build their knowledge up on? Reason and experience. Data. Now, observe something else. Let's suppose that square that I've drawn here is, is, a, is all of your knowledge at, at a given time. Let's say it's uh, 825 p.m. and that's all your knowledge. That represents your data set. Now, at 8.30, five minutes from now, you'll be adding a little bit more data to that. Five minutes after that, you add more data to that. Let's call all the points of the data that you have in your knowledge that you've directly observed or by instrumentation have acquired. Let's call that n units of data. Okay. At the knife edge of time, as the clock ticks, what's happening to your data set as far as observations? It's increasing. So we come to this dilemma. What do you do with the n plus one piece of data? How do you know in advance that the n plus one piece of data, the newest piece of data, won't totally invalidate everything else you've ever known? Now, how do you defend against that? Show me a non-biblical, without referring to the scriptures, show me how you defend against this. Historically, this is what led philosophers into skepticism. Because if you say that you can never have all the data, then isn't all your, aren't all your conclusions merely tentative? All of your conclusions, all of your conclusions are merely tentative subject to change when n plus one piece of data comes into the data set. Now, do you really believe that? Do you believe you could live that way if you really believe that? That everything you know, everything, including all the moral issues, right, wrong, this, that, blah, 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 all that is contingent 
and only tentative? What does this do to the whole meaning of life? It makes all life tentative. In fact, it totally demeans and destroys the whole issue of knowledge, period. This is a very practical matter, and I am convinced that this is one reason why our educational system is such a mess. Because the educational system has tried to build on a pagan basis. I can't get excited about learning if everything by definition I learn is tentative. I'm learning nothing that's going to endure. I can't be sure it's going to endure. So, we have the limitation on reason and the limitation on experience. Now, if you'll come down to bottom page 48, a special limitation in constructing histories of nature. And, of course, um, evolution is one of the modern versions, but it's not the only one. Let's, let's look at this thing further. In order to have knowledge of anything, I can't have this, can I? I need to just think it through. I can't live this way. So, what do I have to do if I'm a non-Christian person? What do I do to save myself in my thought life? Let's see if I have any sheets left. No, I don't. Um, what I have to do is I have to have something that is constant. Right? I've got to assume something is constant. What do I use? as an object for that. Where do I get my constants from? Think about it for a minute. It can't come from experience, can it? Because experience tells me that everything's so up to now. But it doesn't tell me what the n plus one state is going to tell me, so I can't be sure something's constant. Practical illustration. Go back 2,000 years into a wedding. You're standing there enjoying the refreshments. And there's this guy, Jesus, that comes to this particular wedding service. And a uh, worried look on the lady's face that she's run out of wine. And he suddenly makes some wine in the back room someplace. You don't know that. And you drink it. Now, you're not a teetotaler. You've been around a while. You know what good wine tastes like. And you also know what else about good wine. What do you know about his age? That it's aged. It doesn't get made with a Kool-Aid packet. Well then, what do you immediately think as you sip this wine? It's delightful. You have assumed something is constant, haven't you? What have you assumed is constant? The processes of fermentation. You've presumed on the basis of your experience. You have no n plus one piece of data to contradict that. You've concluded grandiosely from all your life's experiences that fermentation always takes this amount of time. You're wrong. What interfered with your constant? Jesus. And what he did, whatever he did, he took H2O. Think of it chemically. He took H2O and convert it into wine. Now, I'm not a chemist, but I do know that wine has carbon in it. It's an organic molecule. Where do the carbon atoms come from? Where do they come from? You don't just see carbon atoms appear. But they did. But they can't. They did. Well, nowhere in my experience have I ever seen that. Well, now it's part of your experience, isn't it? Now you've got a problem, haven't you? Because now God's injected the n plus one piece of data, and now what did it do to your constant based on n pieces of data? It wrecked them. Let's take another example. You've got your video camera. Good hot battery in there, ready to roll. You get in a time machine, and you go back to a garden, and you suddenly see the first man. And you film Adam. And then you take it back to show your friends. Look at this guy. Handsome man. How old do you think your friends would think he was? And why? Think of the processes again. The intellectual processes that went wrong. And why did they go wrong? Because your friends, on the basis of n pieces of data, had mistakenly inferred a constant, hadn't they? But when faced with this miraculous, sudden creation, it blew away the constant. It was the n plus one piece of data. Sorry. It's the way it goes.
But now, in, in, to conclude here, because we are cutting to the end here and running over, but I started late, so I have three minutes. Um, I want to finish this thought on the constants. Um, we won't have a discussion period afterwards. Uh, so, The constant of God is located. It's there. But it's not a premature constant based on this limited experience. What's the constant? What attribute of God have we talked about now? Up to tonight, because all that was preparatory. Where is the real constant? It's his character. And what attribute of God have we stressed that is the, it is the creator anchor for all constancy? His immutability. He is the one who never changes. And his plan from eternity past never changes. So there is a constant, but it's located in the Creator, not the creature. See the difference? What paganism has to do is force the constant to be located down at the creature level instead of at the creator level. And that's what's wrong in physics, that's what's wrong in biology, that's what's wrong in chemistry, because they insist on doing this. And if you think about it, this, ever, this, this dogma that we have these constants that are inviolable. How can we arrogantly proclaim an inconstant, an inviolable constant on the basis of finite n pieces of data? And that's what simply we're saying with any kind of natural history, be it a natural history of the wedding feast at Cana, the natural history of the creation of Adam in the garden, or the natural history of anything else our magnificent God has done. He is constant. He didn't change his plan. If we could diagram the process this way, and we'll stop here. If we could diagram the process of that wine, the fermentation, and we say that here's time, and here's the value of the fermentation constant, whatever that is. Okay? It's like this in all of human history. And then there was a gap. And the fermentation constant went zero. It zeroed out just for a millisecond. Now, if God wasn't there in control of this process, we would have chaos, would we not? Remember I told you the pagan agenda is I've got to have it all or I don't want anything. And the pagans don't like to hear us talk this way because their interpretation of us is that we are promoting chaos. We are destroying all knowledge when we allow these perturbations to happen. Are we destroying all knowledge? Not if we've located it in God's plan. Did God plan this event? From all eternity, did God plan the wedding feast at Cana? Of course He did. All right. When we come marching along in time then, is God in charge? 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 Yes. 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 Is God in charge at that moment? Yes. Does it fit His rational plan? Yes. Well, then the plan of God is where the constancy is, not in the creature. And that's the dilemma that we face behind evolution, behind all the rest of the things. It's a mislocation of where we build our constants. All right, next time we're going to deal with, start moving into the fall. Uh, those of you who want to hang around a little bit, we, we can discuss this late, uh, as we have time. But I'd like to conclude now and cl close in prayer. If you will do, uh, read through into chapter 4. And in your Bibles, please read chapter 3 of Genesis. If you haven't looked at the exercise at the bottom of page 49, if you look at that, uh, I refer you to some scriptures and some, some provocative questions there to help you think through some things. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for what a magnificent, omnipotent, sovereign, omniscient God you are. And how puny man is compared to who you are. And how arrogant for us to claim that we must know it all or we know nothing. When you offer us your truth, your light, and most of all, yourself. In Christ's name, amen.